On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, Brian Alexander shares about digital literacy then and now. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Brian Alexander, is an internationally known futurist, researcher, writer, speaker, consultant, and teacher working in the field of how technology transforms education. He's been listening to this podcast for a while now and also has recently blogged about all the other podcasts he regularly listens to. I'll be putting that in the show notes if you want to take a look at teachinginhighered.com slash 144 to see what he's listening to. A little bit more about Brian, he completed his English Language and Literature PhD at the University of Michigan in 1997 with a dissertation on doppelgangers in Romantic Era Fiction and Poetry. Then Brian taught Literature Writing, Multimedia, and Information Technology Studies at Centenary College of Louisiana. There, he also pioneered multi-campus interdisciplinary classes while organizing an information literacy initiative. From 2002 to 2014, Brian worked with the National Institute for Technology in Liberal Education, a nonprofit, working to help small colleges and universities best integrate digital technologies. And in 2013, Brian launched a business, Brian Alexander Consulting, He consults throughout higher education in the United States and abroad. He speaks and publishes frequently with articles appearing in venues, including the Atlantic Monthly and Inside Higher Ed. Brian, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. I have been able to be quite the sleuth and go into your past, and we're going to go all the way back to spring of 2008. Where, I know <laughs> where you published an article called Web 2.0 and Emergent Multiliteracies. And I kept thinking you probably finished writing that, I would guess. It's co-authored, by the way, with Susan Metros and Christina Wolsey. Mm-hmm. Spring, so it's probably end of 2007. What's it like to go back and think about Web 2.0 in Emergent multiliteracies, and then think of today, 2017. Oh, it's a, it's a blast. It, it, it's one of those things where you, you think about in uh, political science, they have the cliche, every paper is called something, 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 continuity and change, mm-hmm. right? Because you can always point to something that continues and something that changes. And, and it, it feels like that in a way. I mean, I, I look back and think, well, we were right about so many things. Uh, the importance of the web, uh, the importance of the, the centrality of the web, uh, the fact that the web was a social medium, uh, that people will be participating in it, and that's terrific, and uh, that's continued to be true as the web has expanded. But then there are things that uh, that we overestimated. Uh, social bookmarking, for example, never really became a big deal. I mean, Digo is very nice, and I'm a huge fan of Pinboard, but those are relatively minor. And we didn't really talk about the huge churn of social media platforms, how all these different footholds on the web 
appeared and vanished or appeared and then you know, went underground. Uh, so, you know, we mentioned delicious, right? The first social bookmarking tool that appeared and then has kind of leveled off and almost vanished or, um, you know, Harvard had its own social bookmarking tool, but you can think about other ones. You could think about MySpace. You could think about the whole rash of early blogging platforms, very few of which are actively in use anymore. There's a, there's a lot of churn, but I think overall we were right. We, we hit on the web as a, as a major feature of literacy and learning and, uh, we were right and continue to be right. And that's a good thing. Uh, we didn't identify a horrible monster. I mean, we identified, uh, a really powerful platform for human expression and connection with flaws, with problems. But yeah, that's a that's a major stride forward for the human race, I think. One of the many reasons I wanted to invite you on the show was out of getting to witness a little bit of a back and forth conversation between you and Michael Caulfield about digital literacy. And before we start talking specifically about some of your healthy debate around that, let's just start with how do you define digital literacy? Because there's so many definitions out there and it's really hard to nail down. It's funny. Last year, I did a, a paper for the New Media Consortium on digital literacy. And I found in my research that there were many competing definitions. And then we polled members of the New Media Consortium network, more than 400 people. I think this is actually a unique uh, poll. And we asked them for their definitions, and then we uh, gave them some A-B testing of different definitions. So we showed them definitions from, uh, oh gosh, from JISC, from Doug Belshaw, from uh, the American Library Association, and so on. And it was pretty clear. There are a lot of different definitions. And the report got pushback. And one of the, for me, the most entertaining sources of pushback was people saying, how dare they say there are multiple definitions? <laughs> why? There is my definition. <laughs> oh, of course, how foolish of me to not have not appreciated that. I, I think digital literacy, I'm not going to give you a simple definition, because I think right now there are way too many in play, and the subject is in flux. In many ways, you know, the idea of thriving online, uh, which some have used, I think is pretty good. I think you can decompose it into different pieces. Uh, Doug Belshaw does that, for example. Um, and then you can turn it into attitudes. Uh, Howard Rheingold, for example, said, you know, the two of the key parts of digital literacy, one of them is having a good BS detector. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, he said this years ago, and uh, the 2016 election has really heightened that, I think, for people. But the other is that's participatory. And I think this is the one of the most challenging parts of the digital universe for educators, is that we were, most of us were not trained in participatory media and we really haven't integrated that into our teaching and learning. I mean, we often teach students how to participate in the classroom. And that's a key part of what we do. But then we don't teach them to participate online. Or if we do, we do it in hideously blinkered, siloed environments like, you know, the learning management system, which is basically antisocial. Then, you know, I, I also add a historical dimension to this. I think digital literacy builds on two very, very important precursors. One of them is media literacy, which people usually date back to the 60s and 70s, and that's the whole idea of a skeptical, critical approach to mass media. I think digital literacy really inherits that and, and really should. Uh, the second part is the information literacy movement, which started off in the 1980s, um, at least in the United States, the American Library Association's call you know, in 1980, very prescient. They said, hey, coming up in the future, we're going to have people using the internet to find information, and they won't be going through library sources. So we're going to have to help them train to train themselves to figure out what's good online, how to find it, and how to use it. You know, it's pretty sharp for the for the age of gopherware, right? And I think digital literacy incorporates that, 
And that incorporate that adds to it a few key features, one of which is that digital literacy is productive. People make stuff. I mean, a lot of media criticism, a lot of information literacy is based on some form of the user as either a passive consumer or a non-social producer. So, oh, Bonnie just sent me this story. Is it true or not? Okay, you know, that's it's important. It's vital. You've got to have that. But then what do you do next? And all too often, these prior forms of literacy would say you consume it, you make a decision, or you make something, but the thing you make isn't shared. It's something that you, you know, hand in to a professor, for example. I think a key part of digital literacy in the social age is that it is productive. We are making stuff. So Bonnie shows me a story, and maybe I share it uh, through whatever venue possible, be it Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, MySpace, Pinterest, uh, Twitter, and then maybe I do something with it. We produce things. See, that I told you, I told you, I did not have a simple answer. I had a very, <laughs> very long-winded and deconstructed one. I think Sorry. I would have been worried if you did have one in the sense of one of the early, and this wasn't necessarily digital literacy, but more web literacy. One of the early models that really has resonated and still in many ways continues to reson resonate with me is Mozilla's web literacy map. And mm -hmm. they talk about, and, and I guess this could just be my weakness in, in how I took it in early on, but was just thinking that the problem here is people don't have the technical skills to be able to share on the web. They don't have the technical skills to be able to, you know, be more of a creator in, in their own digital life. But what I realized was either the weakness of the model or my own weakness is how emotional it can be for some people to share on the web and how much fear is there. And then, of course, some of that fear is rightfully so. Yet, do we want to allow the entire web to be made up of trolls and <laughs> that type of thing? Or, or can we have some levels of not just only courage, but also confidence that the risks that we take are worth it? I don't know. That, that was a little bit of a, a tangent, but I'm glad you have a, a very multifaceted definition because it's more than just the technical skills that it takes to participate in today's web. You know, the emotional part is crucial and, and really complex. I mean, on the one hand, we have the problem of uh, so much emotional abuse. And, and what's interesting is that that was a feature of the early internet uh, dating back to the 80s with, say, Usenet and listservs. And it became a big issue and as the digital world grew. I mean, you can see this in, for example, massively multiplayer online gaming or virtual worlds. And uh, recently, over the past few years, with Trump and with Gamergate, it's really metastasized in many ways. And there, there's some really horrible stuff out there. And that, that's what I was referring to when I primarily when I mentioned some of the problems that we have to deal with. And so that can be very that can make the web very terrifying for people. But there are other emotional pieces, too. There's the digital equivalent of the speaker's nervousness. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh, I'm about to type something in front of a lot of different people. What are they going to say? Who will read it? What happens? And, and there's that. And for teachers, this becomes an extra level of, of anxiety because teachers are hired because they are experts in whatever, you know, in sports medicine and French and biology. And that's their job is to be the expert in the classroom, wherever that classroom may be. And then to set foot on the social participatory world of the web, suddenly they're, they're not the expert. They are the average user. And in fact, they may, as you said before, have technical challenges. 
And that's, that's very hard. That's very threatening. Uh, and that's one of the major reasons why educators have had a hard time actually using the web uh, in teaching and learning. I do want to go back to your technical point, though. The, the technical skills part is, is so true. Um, that's, you know, it really does count. Um, and as the technology keeps growing and ramifying, it keeps persisting and, and, and developing. So we, we do have an increasing amount of social media use, at least in the United States. But at the same time, tools get more complex. So you may have someone who has mastered Facebook and they have, maybe they run their own blog, but they don't understand Snapchat or WhatsApp. Someone may be very comfortable using the desktop, but the phone functionality is, is beyond them. Uh, so the technical skills are, I think, an unavoidable part of digital literacy. You've got to be able to you know, ring the bells and press all the right buttons to be able to achieve your requisite degree of participation and skepticism and so forth. I love your analogy of the speaker's nervousness because I can have a lot of empathy for people who are nervous about public speaking and we recognize what a fear that is, but I have never compared these things. And I think sometimes I don't have the kind of empathy I would want to have around some of the fears. And I think part of it comes my lack of empathy. And by the way, mostly I have it, but in the times when I fail, it's because people treat technical skills in a binary way. I either am technically oriented or I am not and never the twain shall meet. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about how people who are listening, who genuinely consider themselves not technical, they genuinely think of themselves that way, how they might just get started developing because there is so much out there. What would be a smaller step that someone could take to develop their own digital literacy skills that could start to build some early confidence and would have a big payoff? What a fantastic question. And let me just second your point about the binary. You know, I mean, digital computing is at its root binary, you know, a series of ones and zeros. (laughs) But maybe we should think think about this in in terms of quantum computing, the ability to have a range between zero and one. And I think that's true for most skills. Uh, You know, and when it comes to the digital world, we are there's some version of competency. And in fact, in the European discussion about information and digital literacy, they use the term competencies. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're not necessarily a genius. You're not necessarily a fluent person, but you're competent. And that's, that's worth shooting for. I, I guess a, a key piece of advice to give people is, first of all, nobody masters all this stuff. Nobody can. It's, it's far too big. It's like saying, all right, I'm going to start to learn a foreign language. Well, somebody out there knows all of them. No, they don't. It's, there's just... There's just too much. And you can feel empowered by seeing skilled people not know certain things. For example, a friend of mine was talking about at their school, they had a whole bevy of uh, Japanese 18-year-old students. And the students were having a very hard time with Word. And he was trying to figure out, what was the problem? Problem turned out, the students had never used a computer before. All they had used were phones. And so they were brilliant at phones but they hadn't sat down at a desktop before, which really took me back. I mean, I, I've been talking about the power of mobile for years. I thought this was a quite a sign. One thing to think about if you're trying to get started enhancing your digital literacy is to grab one particular corner of it and just get comfy with it. Mm. So grab, grab, say, some social, medium, some social media platform, and whichever one you like. Uh, if you're a very professional person, you might like LinkedIn, LinkedIn is also really good if you like a very crowded, busy interface. <laughs> I'm just saying that as a description. Yeah. I mean, it, I feel very comfortable there myself. 
it might be that you want Google Plus if you're you know used to inhabiting the Google sphere and Google Plus has a lot of neat things plugged into it. It could be that you're on Facebook, like more than a billion users are, or Pinterest, or you want to set up your own blog. And there are a lot of platforms for that, from Blogger to WordPress. But pick one of those and then just really start getting comfy with it. I mean, don't master it. Maybe that's down the road. But just start pushing it what it can do. Look for other people there that you can follow that might be interesting or productive. Someone who's in your line of work or someone has a fellow interest, be it your profession or the wonders of cats. And then uh, follow them. Follow more people. And learn to distinguish what's good and what's bad uh, for you in that medium. And do that for a while. And then eventually, try another medium and just see how you can apply lessons from the first to the second. And then share what you learn. So get the platform. Say, hey, I've been using this for five months. This is what I found. What are you guys finding? But sharing is a key component. I find people on the web really are receptive to people getting meta about their use of the technology. One of the great things about doing what you've recommended is as you start to get comfy with it, you're going to, without even realizing it, learn techniques that will help you elsewhere. My doctoral students right now are learning how to blog for the first time, and they were challenged by how do I link to something else, this highlight, click the tool or use the keyboard shortcut, paste in a link, and then decide if I want it to open in a new window, etc. These are all brand new things for them. And I told them that that is one of those things, it's worth learning because it's going to work in Blackboard in future classes when you're participating in discussion boards. I don't do a lot of discussion boards, but it, that'll help you in other other web platforms. It'll help you, I mean, pretty much just pick a web platform. There's some idea of how do I link to another part of the web. That's a good skill that's going to transfer a lot of other places. This is what I was getting at about the difficulty we're having in really integrating the web into our lives is that something as simple and basic and world-changing as a hyperlink, which you know people were writing software for in the 1980s uh, with hypertext creative engines from places like Eastgate, we still have a hard time with it. And what, when I mentioned that the LMS is a, is a silo, that's a perfect example, because you can link out from Canvas or Moodle or Sakai or Blackboard or whatever, but linking in is a dead end. Um, and I found that in many ways, we still have a hard time with this, you know that Stanford did that study about information literacy a few months ago. It was fascinating. And, and one of the pieces that just oh, broke my heart was uh, students looking at one tweet. One of the reasons they weren't able to apprehend it critically was because they didn't click on it. They just didn't have that basic web literacy of click on a hyperlink. They weren't afraid for it for security reasons. They just hadn't, it wasn't part of their necessary toolkit. And I think part of it, if we can go back to 2004, 2006, is that for a lot of Americans, we came late to the mobile world. We were the last country in the world really to figure out the mobile phone. We did very little with it until uh, 2007 when the iPhone and Android came out and then suddenly we leaped up on it. But one, the way that we've constructed the, the mobile experience is often apart from the web. I mean, you, know, you go to iTunes, you go to apps. And you're really outflanking the web. You're still using the internet, but you're not using the hypertext engine of the web. And a lot of publishers, a lot of content creators have produced content for mobile devices, for the phone and for tablets that doesn't involve the web because they want, they're giving you wonderful content and they want you to stay there and not leave and go somewhere else. I, I think we have to really make that web literacy a crucial component of 
not just teaching and learning, absolutely that, but also basic citizenship of being alive in the world of the web. I'd like to talk a little bit more about what's changed from one of your other earlier writings. And I do feel a little bit like I'm hosting a, this is your digital life show, only I didn't plan. (laughs) I didn't bring any guests in. Sorry, no surprise guests are coming. So in 2006, in Educause, you wrote Web 2.0, a new wave of innovation for teaching and learning. And a couple of things that you talked about here, and you mentioned earlier, the idea of social software and also the idea of openness. As you reflect on our teaching, where are we today in 2017 that is perhaps surprising when you think back to 2006 when you wrote that initial article? What is surprising? A few things. Um, I didn't write about this in 2006, but I was at the, I, and I had been at that time for about 10 years, really worried about government surveillance. Mm-hmm. And I was really worried about business surveillance. And uh, I had this kind of X-Files-like Fox Mulder idea that if only the people knew, man, they, they'd rise up in the streets. And that happened. We had Snowden, who revealed that digital surveillance was actually mind-blowingly vast, far greater than anybody had ever said in public, proved it extensively. And then the world's response, especially in America, was, meh, all right. You know, we didn't really change. Uh, We continue to use uh, open or parasitic social media, gladly. We use mobile devices, which are fantastic tracking mechanisms. Um, That surprised me. I really really didn't think that that would happen. That's one, I guess, in many ways, one of my biggest surprises. A second surprise is just how vile people decide to be using social media Again, I come back to Gamergate, and I come back to the, uh, the Trump army of trolls. You know, these are not new problems. I mean, you could go back to Julian Dibble's classic, classic piece, uh, A Rape in Cyberspace, which describes uh, sexual offense taking place in a text-only virtual environment, you know, in a pre-web world. And in many ways, I thought we were doing better than that in 2006, and I, I really didn't expect us to be worse at that. So I guess those are... Those are two things. If you wanted me to prognosticate from 2006 to 2017, I think I would have predicted educators doing more with the web than, than we are now. Mm-hmm. I, think I, would have, uh, I think I would have put us uh, a little more quickly on the developmental curve than, uh, than we have been. You know, those are some things that, uh, that really surprised me. So I want to be selfish and circle back before we go to the recommendations segment. You talked a bit about social bookmarking and that being something so essential for you in your own continuous learning. And I'll tell you, it's, I'm a huge fan. And also, I'm a huge fan of Pinboard like you, although it's not so much about the tool as it is what these different kinds of social bookmarking tools can do for us. One of the big resistances, and I'm always surprised because they're all relatively easy to use. Being able to install a extension on our browser helps us be able to save things really quickly. But once we understand how to save a or how to install an extension, it's a relatively easy tool to use. But what I get is way more resistance than I ever would have expected. And it comes from, well, why wouldn't I just look up what I needed when I need it? Why wouldn't I just Google? So I'm going to I need, mm. I need information about this. And for me, I know that mm. it's so ingrained in me because I think, oh, if you knew how many times I go back to my 
social bookmarking tool, I mean, on a daily basis, and then really deep dives on a weekly basis, but I still am completely fail at explaining the value. So maybe you'll do a better job than I do. Why is social bookmarking so important in your own lifelong learning? Oh, my goodness. No, I've, I've had the same kind of problem when I've, uh, I used to teach workshops on uh, social media, and, uh, you know, would give people a tour through different platforms. And that was one which uh, most people were befuddled by. There's so many good things. And one of them is my own learning over time that I get to look back at the categories I've created, the keywords I've added. Uh, Delicious, which is fallen condition, I really lament, used to have this you know, on-the-spot uh, tag cloud generator. And it was fascinating because it, it got me out of my own headspace. I could see what it looked like from the outside. So there'd be a keyword, wow, macroeconomics? I didn't realize I was tagging so much in that. Huh, okay, that, that really is something I'm doing. That's useful. The social thing is, is so useful. People you know, will share things through social bookmarking. Uh, people will often uh, aim something at me through Delicious or through Digo. I know Mache's platform, Pinboard, is antisocial, and I really respect that. That's a, it's a cute idea. But the social connection uh, really counted for me. For example, to bookmark something and then see how many other people in the system have bookmarked it and what keywords they attach to it. It was really useful for me. It would give me perspective, especially for uh, topics that were new to me. I guess the other thing is it's, it's not so much the ability to immediately recall something. Oh, what was that paper? But the fact that I had noted it at all. You know, it's like the Rumsfeldian thing. These are the unknown unknowns, if you will. So, you know, six years ago, I bookmarked this one PDF. Huh, I totally forgot about that. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't remember to remember it now, but it's there. Much like, you know, a book in a bookshelf or a paper in a filing cabinet. So, I mean, those are very positive for me. And the other thing is the, the web moves on. Things, uh, things develop. Things grow very quickly. And so we can leave behind content in the pursuit of the new. And to have Pinboard and Digo be living archives is, is, is really vital. Just in a full disclosure, uh, the creator of Pinboard and I used to work together at the same nonprofit. Hmm. Uh, our offices were actually joined uh, through a common elevator. And uh, Maché is a delight to read. His, uh, his blog, Idle Words, is, is uh, very, very awesome. Those are a few things, uh, uh, a few things I really like about uh, social bookmarking. Well, this is the time where we each get to recommend some things. And I have a technique and a tool and they're related. And the technique is one that comes up so often in this podcast, but it seems like when I actually get it right, then it just surprises me every time with how delightful it is, both as one who attempts to facilitate learning and then also as my students get to experience it. The technique is to allow our students to explore more to give them a chance to have sort of a landscape of possibilities to be able to reflect on what they're experiencing as they're going through the exploration and then to share back with each other what they discovered. And specifically how this change came about recently in my teaching is that I mentioned these doctoral students who are blogging for many of whom it's for the first time. And as I'm discovering so much there, yes, I need to help facilitate their learning in technical ways, but I'm discovering so much I have to facilitate through the fear. And some of the fears are absolutely very rational fears and ones that need to be addressed. I most recently had a woman who had foster children in her care, and she's not able to put anything very personal about herself on the web as a part of the types of very high profile 
young people who she cares for. And that was very easy. Well, we can set up a blog and not use your name. And in fact, she made it important to her to not even indicate what her gender was, her gender identity on that blog. And mm. But she still thrived and got to explore and all of these things. So instead of me trying to do so much telling of the benefits of having a digital presence, this time I just came up with a whole diverse set of individuals who I thought had really great personal brands and were able to explore parts of life that maybe other people don't even realize are possible for themselves. And so I gathered up a bunch of people's blogs who do speaking, who do writing, who some of them are K through 12 because the program I teach in is partial K through 12 and some higher ed. So it was a whole mix of people. And I oh, just wow. put all the, I put all of these sites all together and sent them out in an email, but it was for a synchronous class and then said, go explore. You've got 20 minutes, go see what you can find. What do you think? Does any of this resonate with you? Or you know, is this any, any, thing you might want to have represented about yourself online. It was really great. And the tool that helped me make this easier from a technical standpoint is called Session Buddy. Imagine I had all these different websites that I had picked out on my browser that I liked a lot for this project. Instead of having to manually copy and paste each one of these links into this email that I sent out, Session Buddy lives up in my browser in a little extension and I could just click on it and say I want to save all of these as a collection that I called digital identity. And then mm. later on I can go back in and open up all my digital identity tabs. I can add new ones to it, but I also can share them all in different ways. I can share share them just plain text or I could share them in HTML if I wanted to put them on my own blog or something like that. And I thought what a nice way to easily be able to share and then have a collection uh, that's that's just easy to share. So so the technique is do let let students have more opportunities to explore and the tool is session buddy. And what do you have to recommend today? That's awesome. Um, my gosh, well I could just you know be a terrible guest and just go fool around with session buddy <laughs> for the next time. It's really um, cool. I, I was going to recommend two books. Can I do two books absolutely. or do I have to do one? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. These are two books that I think really, really matter for today. Uh, one of them is by Sarah Goldrick Rabb, uh, and it's called Paying the Price. Uh, and it's a book about financial aid. And it doesn't normally sound like the most compelling read, but you should know that it was so compelling that it landed her a spot on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. She is a wonderful scholar who has been uh, studying this very closely, launched a very powerful research lab in Wisconsin and is basically trying to figure out how financial aid is actually working in real life. Is it actually helping students get to college? And her conclusion is that financial aid has broken, that it is a disaster, and it needs aggressive treatment and reconstruction in order to do what it was originally supposed to do. The book is not political. It is uh, meticulously detailed. I mean, an incredible amount of data. But she also fleshes out the data with personal stories, uh, where she tracks students who either manage to succeed or whose lives are blocked and snimbied by how financially it plays out. I can't think of a more important book for people to read in secondary and post-secondary education right now. So that's Paying the Price by Sarah Goldrick Rapp. The second book, uh, which is even more daunting, I'm afraid, is by Robert Putnam called Our Kids. And some readers might recognize Putnam's name. He was famous in the 1990s for a book called Bowling Alone. Uh, which made an argument for a kind of 
decohesion in American social life. Our Kids is a study of differences among children across the United States. And the book's thesis is that class divides have now become greater than any other divide, including gender, including race, including ethnicity and geography. And he does this with a few ways. One is a giant pile of research. I mean, tons and tons of data, huge amounts of, uh, of research through the sociological literature. Uh, a second is through personal stories. Again, he describes growing up in a small town in the North Shore of Ohio and then visits it again. But then he also traces a bunch of students who are kids who are growing up, teenagers or younger kids. And he makes the case that America is going through what another sociologist has called the big sort, where we are basically splitting apart at the micro level. It's, it's the micro level. It's the township level, the suburb level, the block level, not the level of states. Um, but the wrong side of the tracks now is becoming mandatory. And this plays out in all kinds of things, including K-12 funding and the structuring of K-12. Uh, it plays out in politics. And he concludes the dire warning that uh, we're basically creating a two-tier society. He uses the word apartheid at least once. It says that if we don't address this, we may face powerful social and political consequences. And guess what? The book is from two years ago. Mm. Now, both of these are works of social science. I'm a humanities person, so if I can read these, enjoy them, and appreciate them, anybody can. So again, that's Sarah Goldrick-Rab, Paying the Price, and Robert Putnam, Our Kids. Before we sign off, would you share a little bit about your book club, since I know that you're either currently or just wrapping up the discussion on paying the price, and I think other people might like to engage with that community that's sharing about different books? Well, please do. This is something that, that I've improvised over the past five years. I love reading. I'm a bibliophile, uh, which when I say that, my wife says that's a cry for help. Um, <laughs> and I love reading together, and I love using social media to do that. So back in the 1990s, I actually launched my first book club reading. I did a uh, reading of two memoirs of World War One, one written by the great poet and novelist Robert Graves, and the other one written by the peace activist and nurse Vera Britton. They didn't know each other during the war, but they both wrote a memoir of their experience. So I, I went through both books, broke them up by time, so every week we could read them in their chronological time. So what were they both doing in April 1917? What were they both doing in the fall of 1916? And uh, we used email to organize that. And it was a really good discussion. And it really inspired me. So I've been doing this on the web. And the way that works is I ask everybody who reads my blog, either directly or by it being reposted through LinkedIn, Facebook, and, and uh, Google+. I ask people you know, for suggestions of what to read. And my focus is basically the future of education. Uh, that's my professional job is to wonder about that. So we'll ask for books. You know, like Sarah Goldrick Rebs is so important because it takes a look at the finances of higher education. And then when we pick one, I come up with a quick agenda and we structure it by me posting uh, to my blog once a week uh, about the reading up to that point. So say we're reading a nonfiction book, we read a chapter a week. So week one, I'll post about chapter one, week two, about chapter two, week three, chapter three, and so on. I'll post some quick notes and some questions to get going and a hashtag. And then people will participate in a few different ways. One is by commenting on the blog post. Sometimes they'll go to Twitter and they'll prefer to issue comments that way. Sometimes they'll set up on their own blog. They'll write about it uh, and use the same hashtag and we'll link that together. And then sometimes they get even more creative. Uh, last year, we read this magnificent book 
called We Make the Road by Walking. The book is a dialogue between two very, very important educators, uh, Paulo Freire, the great Brazilian um, uh, liberation pedagogy uh, expert and practitioner, and Miles Horton, a wonderful civil rights hero who built a great series of schools in Appalachia. And the book is about them talking about education and what it means to help the poor and the dispossessed and the marginalized. And participation took off like mad. People were tweeting about this 10, 20 times a day. And then people got creative. They started making images and graphics. They would take the the, the cover of the paperback edition, remix it. Someone thought he had a fun time with, doc, with a, a Dr. Seuss cover, remix that. Alan Levine and a few other people wrote bots that would generate random quotes from the book. <laughs> um, and then the book started inspiring people to dig into archives. A Canadian participant whose name temporarily escapes me uh, dove into a Canadian pedagogical project that was really, really fascinating and is now trying to develop a new version of that online. I, I thought of this as the kind of the exploded Twitter book club because it's, it's disintegrated. The discussion is happening all over the place. And Twitter and my blog are kind of the, the anchors such as they are. So if you want to find out more, just go to brianalexander.org. Look at the very top. There's a little tab for book club. Click that, and you'll find uh, examples. We've read all kinds of stuff. We've read nonfiction, uh, analyses of higher education. We've read about four different near-future science fiction novels to try and think about where things are going. And we have to figure out our next book. So I'd love to hear from your listeners, Bunny, to see what they'd like. I'd love to hear from you what we should be reading. Ah, a challenge. I will admit to being a little bit intimidated by some of them, and I've just been enjoying peering in from a distance. But that's the great thing is that we can do that if we want. You can. That's the great thing. You can. I'm, I'm glad to know. I mean, you know, what's what's the ratio of participants to lurkers? What is it like? You know, one to five, <laughs> one to six. So, yeah, um, yeah. Well, that's wonderful. People who are listening who want to comment on today's episode can do so at teachinginhighered.com slash 144 and all the links to things that Brian talked about. It's going to be a lot of links. I'm excited to, <laughs> to consolidate it all and then links over to his blog and his book club, etc. Brian, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. It's absolutely thrilled to talk to you and I feel like I've learned so much and, I, and I'm just excited to share the episode with everyone. Bonnie, it's a treat talking with you. And as a longtime listener, it's an honor to actually be on the show. Thanks once again to Brian for joining me on this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. One of the things that I didn't mention is if you want to hear more from Brian about future trends in technology and education, he has a wonderful newsletter that you can sign up for and receive ongoing information from him. So take a look at the show notes and you can easily subscribe to that. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you want to not have to remember to go to those show notes every week, but have them come into your inbox, I do have a weekly newsletter that gets emailed to you once a week. And in it are the show notes with all the great links that Brian and I talked about today, as well as an article about either teaching or productivity written by me. You can subscribe at teaching in higher ed dot com slash subscribe. And thanks to those of you who have been writing reviews on iTunes or whatever service it is that you use to listen to the show that really helps other people discover it. If you have any recommendations for future guests or topics, please feel free to get in touch with me either on Twitter or at teaching in higher slash feedback. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.